Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Duncan Rayburn and here is my plan for this podcast for 2021. I, I think it's a fairly good plan, but we all know how reality can mess with our plans. So far here in South Africa at least, uh, but I know this is true for many places in the world, 2021 feels very much like 2020, the sequel, which is not ideal given everything that's been going on with the pandemic, but that's not going to stop me from aiming for something. I've had this idea knocking around in my head for a while now about how we make sense of the world, beginning with particular primordial and fairly universal experiences of being and meaning. And I've noticed how these experiences of meaning are echoed in concrete ways through symbols, where propositions tend to express a mental abstraction arrived at after the actual experience of meaning, symbols encompass something a little bit more holistic, something more like a feeling for being than merely a conception of being. A symbol tries to return us to the experience rather than generate mere abstractions. As much as symbols are also abstractions of a kind, their purpose is to seek deeper resonances with the world than what concepts on their own can do. Symbols are structures or patterns or stories rather than just individual signs. So I think in a way symbolic thinking transcends and gets beyond semiotic thinking. So, for example, what is significant about the cross as a symbol in Christianity is how it represents this collaboration of divinity and humanity within the total story of the Incarnation, from the birth to the death to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, as well as how these patterns are found beyond the Jesus story in our own lives. The symbol is less about a single isolated event than it is about the total life of Christ and how that parallels and transcends the human story. So with that example in mind, what I'd like to do this year, at least for a significant part of it, is look at the symbolic world of the early chapters of the book of Genesis. What if we were to read the book of Genesis, especially those early chapters, as phenomenology, as a word on how being shows itself to us? Phenomenology presumes that the universe isn't made of matter, but of meaning, that we cannot even determine how things are composed of matter without assuming that this is a component of their meaning. I'm taking my cue, by the way, from the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, who claims that the first account of creation is actually the theological reading of a phenomenology of perception. Ricoeur also says rather beautifully that the first account of creation offers the progressive portrayal of the theatre of our existence. And that's such a lovely idea. Well, I want to take this further by exploring how this phenomenological world extends beyond the first creation account recorded in Genesis. This is not meant to refute or deny more theological or metaphysical readings. In fact, as you will hear as we go along in this little adventure of thought, I can't help but mix the theological and the metaphysical in with my phenomenology. Also, this is not meant to be a formal account, since my aim is to relate the ideas we encounter in Genesis to what is happening in the world right now. I'm interested in what this means for us, for you and me as people, who are doing our best, I hope, to figure out this life that we're living. My emphasis is going to be on what Emmanuel Falk calls a credible Christianity, 
What I want to offer is not just a Christianity for believers aimed at those who have faith and are committed to it, but a Christianity meant also for those who do not believe precisely what I do. We don't have to be on exactly the same page to learn from each other. It's even possible to see why someone else interprets the world the way they do and even to agree with them insofar as their perspective goes without necessarily wanting to adopt that person's worldview. If Genesis offers a phenomenology of perception of sorts, it must be relevant to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Still, as a way to begin this exploration, I want to create a bit of a clearing. I want to focus on the question, what does this idea of a credible Christianity mean? What does it mean, in fact, for anything to be credible or believable? Once upon a time, doctors and scientists thought that frontal lobotomies were a good way to treat hysteria. Even if each of us can think of a few people who would benefit from a bit of brain damage, we know that this was a bad idea, just as we know that hysteria is not a real thing. Nowadays, if I had bronchitis and I went to a doctor and then in all seriousness suggested that perhaps the best treatment for my bronchitis is a bucket of leeches, no doubt he would ask me why I'm not consulting WebMD like every other non-medic who wants to give their doctors an uninformed medical opinion. Obviously, advances in medical research have created a shift in what medical treatments are now plausible. This will not, unfortunately, stop conspiracy theorists from cooking up arguments against such things, but more reasonable and well-informed people are going to notice that things have changed. As the times have changed, what is believable also seems to have changed. The sociologist Peter Berger offers the idea of plausibility structures in part to explain shifts in belief. Plausibility structures are social, cultural contexts of our systems of meaning. They are the context within which our systems of meaning make sense. The idea here is that beliefs and meanings are never really self-evidently true, even if we come to be so familiar with them over time that we come to assume that they are. They need to be supported by social institutions and processes. In his book, In Praise of Doubt, which I very much enjoyed, Berger refers to the Catholic formula, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside the church there is no salvation. And Berger uses this as an example of how the idea of a plausibility structure is something Christians have been aware of for millennia. In sociological language, the same idea would be rendered no plausibility outside the appropriate plausibility structure. In fact, the Catholic formula about no salvation being possible outside the church is now, in the modern West, not very plausible at all, something that apologists everywhere must contend with. But why is that? The obvious answer is that the predominating context within which most of us now make sense of the world, even those of us who are Christians, is not the church. As pluralization and multiculturalism have started to become dominant realities, the idea that truth is an exclusive thing has become less and less plausible. More than that, we have become even more entrenched in a new form of liberalism where identity itself has to be something consented to. This means in general that we don't like it if someone comes along to impose their beliefs on us, even if those beliefs may happen to be true. The times have changed, and so what we find believable and even likable nowadays has also changed. 
Notably, even though the plausibility structure set up a particular phenomenological condition, or maybe plural, phenomenological conditions, we are hardly ever aware of how these conditions affect our beliefs. We are not, generally speaking, aware of how our experiences and worlds operate as plausibility structures. Many of you will know Solomon Ash's famous conformity experiment, which helps to show how plausibility can change without us being aware of it, depending on the plausibility structure. Ash got several participants into a room to visually compare a target line drawn on the left side of a page to three other lines drawn on the right side of the same page. The three lines on the right were given labels, A, B, and C. Everyone in the room was then asked which of the lines on the right matched that single line on the left. This is exactly what they then all did, but most of the people in the room were stooges. They were actually privy to the nature of the experiment, and they were told by the experimenters to deliberately give the wrong answer when asked which line to pick. The only proviso would be that they all needed to agree on the wrong answer. So if one of the stooges picked line C, even when it was clear that line A best matched the target line, all the other stooges needed to agree with him or her. Only one participant in the experiment did not know about any of this. The thing that was being checked was whether people would conform to a group or not, even when the group was obviously wrong. Ash wanted to find out how often each participant would conform to the majority view. In the end, 75% of participants conformed with the group at least once, and only 25% of participants did not conform once. Ash also created a control group for this experiment, which involved no stooges and only one real participant. With the pressure to conform removed, fewer than 1% of participants gave the incorrect answer. But things are even more interesting than they appear in Ash's experiment. Fairly recently, a team of neuroscientists led by Gregory Burns redid Ash's experiment, but this time they checked what was going on in the brains of the participants while they were answering. Predictably, most often, the non-stooge in the experiment was, as in Ash's experiment, swayed by the crowd surrounding them. Looking at the participants' fMRI data, Burns and his colleagues were expecting to see the parts of the participants' brains light up to indicate that they were lying for the sake of not upsetting the crowd. But this is not what happened. Rather, they saw those regions of the brain activate that have to do with visual perception. To put it very simply and bluntly, the participants literally saw differently because of the sway of the crowd. This should give us serious pause. The crowd, along with the experiment itself, became a new plausibility structure. And within that structure, the literal truth became completely unbelievable for most participants. Think for a moment how this might apply when, say, a widespread ideology becomes so normalized that challenging it gets you cancelled. The trouble with the indoctrinated is that they probably cannot conceive of the possibility that they are wrong insofar as the plausibility structure and the mob with it 
remains perfectly intact. As Burns writes in his book Iconoclasts, a plausible explanation is that the group's wrong answers impose a virtual image in the subject's mind. In the case of conformity, this virtual image beat out the image originating from the subject's own eyes, causing the subject to disregard her own perceptions and accept the group's. Naturally, there were those who didn't conform, as they were in Ash's original experiment. In the brains of the non-conformists, it was the amygdala that was activated, a natural fear response. Standing alone evokes fear, as some of us will know well, even without having access to the feedback provided by an MRI machine. These experiments show quite starkly how plausibility is not really a question of truth. The ideal would be, of course, that the plausibility structure itself is set up so that it is receptive to truth, but the reality is often otherwise. We live in a world now of such immense complexity and complications that every proposition or claim offered is soon relativized. This is particularly apparent in the issue of post-truth. The usual but quite naive response to post-truth and things like fake news is that we need better facts. However, the paradox we are faced with is that the information age, the age in which the best data really is already available, is the post-truth age. It's not that post-truth is caused by a lack of information, but precisely the opposite. Post-truth is caused by total transparency. We could never have arrived in the post-truth age without such an onslaught of information. In an age of such extreme relativizations, one of the great temptations is to look for any available totalitarian meaning system to fit into. As Eric Fromm argues in his book Escape from Freedom, which I highly recommend, the presence of too much choice makes such a totalitarian meaning system highly appealing, especially because it takes the burden of choice off the individual. Again, though, the gravitational pull of totalitarian ideology requires a particular plausibility structure before it can be accepted. The information age primes us for quick and easy ways to interpret the complexity, even if those quick and easy interpretive lenses turn out to be wrong. More importantly, the interpretive lenses in so many of the ideological spheres we are in function very much like the stooge deceptions in Ashes and Burns's experiments. They are anti-phenomenological. They deny the experiences of people, or rather set up a way to filter their experiences so heavily that it becomes nearly impossible to recognize the difference between truth and lies, and between reality and fiction, between reality and the construct. Keeping this in mind, I want to point out that while I am always looking for a plausible Christianity I mean attending not just to readily accessible meaning, but to questioning why we find certain things plausible or not. It would be easy enough to make Christianity plausible the way that Thomas Jefferson and Leo Tolstoy did in their retellings of the life of Christ. Just chuck out all the bits about miracles and the supernatural. But this seems to me to shortchange the discerning reader. A more plausible Christianity, to my mind, would be one that answers the complex questions of our age in a way that makes more sense than any dominant ideology. A really plausible Christianity cannot merely be dismissive of Christianity's 
often wider claims. The idea of a plausibility structure finds an echo in Charles Taylor's idea of a social imaginary, which is also something I think is very useful to think about. A social imaginary has to do with the way ordinary people imagine their social surroundings, especially in images, stories, and legends. It is how people think about the world, how they imagine it to be, and as a consequence, how they act in response to this imagining. You might think of this more concretely as the set of values, institutions, laws, and symbols through which people imagine their social whole. It is common to the members of a particular social group and the corresponding society. You might say that a plausibility structure has to do with a vast, often unnameable system of interactions according to which any specific social imaginary is supported. The social imaginary has to do with the whole way we perceive the world and make sense of our behavior in it. This social imaginary can be altered, of course. Intellectuals have done plenty of work to contribute to this, and not always has it been very helpful. Let's say someone like Freud comes along and starts to explain everything by means of some kind of sexual drive. What we see as culture, Freud argues, is really just sublimated sexuality. Carl Jung's rather startling break with Freud, in fact, was over Freud's obsession with this idea. Now, for this theory to be plausible, a particular context would need to be receptive to it. Of course, all of us are sexual beings, naturally graced or cursed with sexual impulses. But it is quite a leap to go from saying that sexuality is one aspect of the human story to saying that it is the whole story. Still, human sexuality could prove to be a significant component of the plausibility structure that would allow a social imaginary to emerge in which sex and sexuality become overvalued as part of the social and cultural landscape. Another part of the plausibility structure that allowed Freud's idea to be accepted was the naivety in Freud's time about scientific rationality. As I'm sure it comes to mind, we do not live in such a very different age now. Freud framed his own theories as scientific, and the so-called scientific nature of his theories made them more plausible. Other factors would have played a part in accepting Freud's ideas. Plausibility structures, after all, are never monocausal. The total framework of interactions, of beliefs, material conditions, rhetoric, technologies, all of these would have played a part too. The progression from Freud's ideas to the present social imaginary in which unchained, often unhinged sexual expression is fairly easy to trace, in fact. Begin with the fact that human beings have always fooled around. Promiscuity is not a new invention. Add to this some technologies that make promiscuity easier and safer. Contraceptives prevent disease and conception. Add to this ideological developments in the sphere of consumerism and desire. Add to that the fact that so-called unwanted pregnancies can be fairly quickly dealt with. Whether you argue that these are good or bad, the truth is that what people do in the bedroom, and especially how many people they do it with, has been shaped by a particular plausibility structure and a particular social imaginary, to the point that it is hardly questioned nowadays. This, of course, is just one example of the way plausibility structure and social imaginary coincide. 
you do not have to be a radical social constructivist to acknowledge that our contexts shape our perceptions and affect what we believe. Berger himself is one of the people that came up with the idea of social construction in sociology, but he never once thought that radicalizing that and turning it into a formula for social engineering was a good idea. Still, as conformity experiments like those done by Solomon Ash, Gregory Burns and others show, it is possible to fall into conceptions of the world that are not even real, simply because the plausibility structure we've been handed makes it so. In a digital world where identities are endlessly malleable and the difference between truth and falsehood is determined less by some real measurement than by the virtual structure of the internet, it becomes fairly easy even to believe that truth doesn't matter at all, that truth really is entirely relative to our own private points of view. What fascinates me and alarms me, to be honest, is especially how quickly the actual experiences of people get negated by developments in plausibility structures and social imaginaries. My sense is that in reclaiming a sense of our primordial experience of reality, in reclaiming a sense of the phenomenological, that is, we will be better equipped to seek meaning that is both plausible and true, not merely plausible. We don't ever fully escape our given social imaginaries and plausibility structures, but we might be able to figure out enough to know that the meaning we seek is not just meaning we make, but is really meaning that is there to be discovered. We might also gain a sense of how we are made by this meaning. Which brings me back to Genesis, to that first book in the Bible. I have met many people who insist on reading that book literally, and those people are both Christians and not. They are all wrong to do this, but such people are working with an interpretive framework that fits a very particular modernist, not ancient Near Eastern, plausibility structure that has long been proven to be misguided. I'm not even going to bother to enter into a discussion with such people, since as far as they are concerned, the case is closed right from the start. But to those of you who are open to a new way of looking at these ancient words, who would consider the possibility of reading the text in a way that seeks to retain the text's integrity without also needing to radically contradict the way we already see the world, I offer this series of reflections. I am mindful that this risks always trying to be relevant, and relevance in and of itself is a very poor measure of what is worthwhile. My real aim, though, is resonance. When we look at our actual experiences, at what it means that all of us are undergoing this human experience in one way or another, we stand a chance of seeing how much alike we all really are. Then, a last thought before I call it a day. Just so you know, you can support me and this podcast at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. I am and continue to be immensely grateful to those of you who do support me through that platform. Even a dollar a month makes a huge difference to what I'm able to achieve here. It helps me to pay for the hosting of this podcast, recording tech and research material, for example. So thank you for that. You are helping me out, but I hope, of course, that it makes a difference to you too. And that is it from me for now. I hope you'll join me for more of the journey. Take care, friends. Take care, friends.